Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Sunday Joint is an adjacent podcast to the Encyclopedia of Surfing and is produced by the Surf Splendor Podcast Network. Thousand years ago, a free-thinking kahuna found a piece of coral that worked better than the piece he already had for grinding koa trees into surfboards. And from there, board-making tech has been one long, happy march forward, delivering us to our present-day CAD-programmed, spindle-driven, five-axis foam-carving hot rod, the holy grail, the shaping machine. The shaping machine, however, does not fit in with our shared belief that surfing is half sport and half infinite Dungeons and Dragons adventure. By leaning into the code and the hardware, we have exterminated the wizards. The boards are better, but the sport is duller. In other words, my head is with the machines, but my heart is with Dick Brewer. From the Encyclopedia of Surfing, I'm Tyler Brewer in Brooklyn. And I'm Jamie Brewer in London. This is the Sunday Joint, where we roll up Matt Warshaw's weekly newsletter for a deep inhale of surfing's past, present, and future. On this episode, we pull from Matt's Sunday Joint on October 3rd, 2021, where Matt recently returned from the boardroom show buzzing about surfboards. So this episode is dedicated to the making of the surfboard, how boards are built, the evolution and construction, the shapers, the relationships, and lore. 
we might be biting off more than we can chew with this one episode. And of course, there is always the grudge match of Stump, my bro. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Listening to the podcast too many times may cause. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the surfboard. Uh, In research for this, Jane, uh, I decided to look up what is a surfboard? Uh, the Wikipedia <laughs> definition of it. Um, I thought it would be fun to give some context here. So Wikipedia describes a surfboard as a narrow plank used in surfing. Surfboards are relatively light, but are strong enough to support an individual standing on them while riding ocean waves. And then it had a really weird fun fact that I was not uh, aware of. Um, this is Wikipedia, mind you, so lots of people put their own input in. The polystyrene surfboard was apparently invented by Reginald Sansbury of Willcove, Tarpoint, in, in, <laughs> in the early 1960s whilst working for the Poron Insulation Company in Millbrook, Cornwall. <laughs> We're looking Whoa. to expand into the leisure industry. Did you know that? <laughs> his name was Sandsbury, like Sandsbury, <laughs> exactly. Like he was a like sander the, by the beach, you know, the, and also Sandsbury, the uh, food place in the UK. Sandsbury, that's, that's the name. Of it. It's S A I N S, not Sandsbury. Sorry, I oh, mispronounced Sainsbury. Sainsbury. <laughs> I found that really interesting is <laughs> in the Wikipedia there. So, so it was saying that he was the one who invented the polystyrene board. Yeah. Or he yeah. Invented, so like before him, there were no uh, boards made of polystyrene, just polyurethane. I guess like so. That. I guess so. That's that's what it says on Wikipedia. Wow. Gosh, I, is there any asterisks next to it with people challenging it or saying anything? Like- I didn't see anything in there. We might have to encourage people to challenge on, on Wikipedia that. Like it's very strange. Like when um, I don't remember who I was reading an interview with, it may have been someone like, you know, Rennie Yader, some, some mm-hmm. really old time shaper. <laughs> and 
they're pointing out how actually like epoxy and polystyrene as surfboards were have been around or been in use or polystyrene and epoxy has been in use for a really long time ago like you know just around the world war ii era or something yeah like you always think of it as being this super modern technology whose day has only just come or something like that <laughs> yeah no i mean they they were using it i mean you know it's uh bob simmons was was using that sort of stuff he did the sandwich construction before surf tech basically you know not the, sand, not the sandwich not the sandwich <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah um it's kind of cool though uh, uh how surfboards have evolved i guess from way back when to now i guess what do you what do you want to how do you want to approach this because i'm i'm definitely like there's a lot <laughs> yeah i like yeah i know when, when you said in the opening about this you know we may have bit off more than we can chew it's a tricky one because I can imagine this episode not going too long because we might just focus on one particular area of surfboard building. Um, but then if it was just about the surfboard, that would be, you know, that would be a podcast in itself, like an ongoing that would be a series. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, look at look at the EOS. Like it's such a daunting task that Matt has not really contributed to the surfboard section yet on the EOS. It's right, like it's still yeah still still coming out and and the beta version um and 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 david the scales is always bringing on a new shaper to interview and it goes yeah. on for hours you know there's so much to find out Absolutely. Um, but i think maybe maybe to get started we, we know how yeah. you and i were talking about how it evolved from started off as kind of a backyard shaper you know your shaping board for yourself and then for your friends and and mm -hmm. then that moved into you know Hobie and Velzi and those guys had to like get a storefront because the garage was too crowded or something and then yeah. it became a surf shop and then eventually you know in the in the 60s it became mass produced by the end you know like pictures of Greg Knoll's factory was yeah. was amazing it looked like a car factory yeah. and then with a shortboard revolution it all came tumbling down and then there were just backyard shapers again and then coming out of that you started to have you know, big name individual shapers, custom shapers. And then again, in the eighties, it started to become mass produced. And then it went into all sorts of tech, you know, with, uh, you know, the tough light, you know, the um, surf tech surf. and all sorts of stuff. And, and then now it, it seems like all of a sudden there's lots of individual shapers again. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it feels like there's a, as a, it's, it's fractured off into different segments now, but I, what I find interesting are actually like the tools, how they've evolved in making surfboards, I think is kind of interesting. Like thinking back, like in the intro, we talked about how the Kahuna used coral, you know, to shape a, you know, koa wood, like first imagine how long that would take and how difficult that would be. But then, you know, you look at like, you know, Tom Blake, who then made a hollow surfboard, basically, and you had Pacific Systems, who had like the build your own kits, which mm. is funny enough, reinvented by grain surfboards, you know, and, and other model surfboard model kit makers now, too. Um, and then you have like Velzi, who uh, who was the first to use the hand planer, basically, 
you the know, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like the electric and, one, yeah, yeah, you know, and then uh, what was it? Greg Skill Knoll had hundred, yeah. wasn't it? Um, Greg Knoll who did the router, who who invented the the router to, to do the to form the rocker. I was watching. He, um, he did build something, yeah. yeah, with his dad, I think, with his stepdad, and yeah, and I know, um, or. And Wayne Lynch said the same thing. Him and his dad built a rocker machine that was yeah. quite rudimentary, but it's like I, I find the those things those are those are the under underexplored uh, aspects of surfboard shaping. I feel like we we always focus on the design, but there's not a lot of focus on on a whole lot on the tech and how that's changed, you know. And it's always interesting how surf culture reacts to the those texts as well right like when foam first time they started using foam people were really against it actually like uh you know um you know phil edwards it took him till 1961 to adopt foam because he didn't like the feel of it, it felt too twangy and it was like well, he said outs. that very uh yeah on pc comment about it <laughs> oh really i don't remember oh uh, spastic I... on plastic good on wood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Phil Edwards, you're now canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's, you know, there's always been this kind of resistance to technology in, in surfboards. You know, I imagine you now some of the Hawaiians were, you know, who were on hot curls and, and stuff. And then they, you know, people started using more fins or the, Malibu chipboard from Quig, you know, which were, um, you know, meant for their girlfriends, basically, and wives, and, you know, so I, it's interesting, like how surf culture resisted. And then the machine, when the machine shape boards started coming, everyone was like, fuck this. I remember like Becker used to have uh, that ad, one man still shapes thousands of boards by hand, you know, it was all anti-machine. Uh, now, like, it's hard to find a board that's not shaped by a machine for a lot of people, or at least get a blank that's pretty much shaped already. Yeah, I know, like, uh, you know, Dave Parmenter made the argument for kind of what you just said, like, when you shape by hand, you know, the happy accidents, the serendipitous mm. movements, you know, end up leading to, you know, big developments that you couldn't have thought of. Whereas, you know, Mickey Munoz and other people have said, when you when you're hand shaping everything, a lot of it is just like hard work, hard labor. You're not really thinking of the design. Whereas if you can get the machine to make all your boards for you, then you can just focus on creating something new and fresh and tweaking something and trying stuff out. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Aki 84 model is a, is a good example of a happy accident. You know, I mean, they had the fin kind of can't one fin canted inwards a little bit and, that's not even the shaping part. That's the glassing part, mm. you know, mm. <laughs> and that board was rode to legendary status. Um, yeah, it wasn't Curran's Black Beauty. It didn't have three separate different sized fins on it or something. Yeah. And the, the band, the black band that was on it was originally supposed to be a much thinner one. And it ended up going much wider, apparently. You know, the graphic. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't I always thought that, that would make all the wax melt off more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed it's, to be a I, pin line. <laughs> no, and it's, I mean, gosh, we're spraying all over the place, but we might Sorry. as well. Like, well, no, but like with right now, like with um, so many 
ordinary people being able to access shaping equipment because you know of uh, some of those companies which you can go online and you can yeah. order anything you need to shape from home um and and just there's been so many people are getting into making their own boards because it's just yeah. this nice thing to do that that people like to do um and you can watch tutorials on youtube and online everywhere yes that's right wasn't um I forgot what it was, but in, you know, in emotions magazine. Yeah. One of the uh, shapers that they interviewed, she was saying that having access to online instruction just really, um, you know, fast tracked her development and becoming a good shaper. Yeah. Ryan Loveless learned from YouTube videos and online, mm. you know, <laughs> like, and he's considered like a top one, of the top shapers right now. Um, it, it, you know, that, uh, you know, there used to be gatekeeped, you know, shaping surfboards was a whole, like you had to know a shaper or, or study under someone to learn it. And now it's become more democratized. Like anyone can, can do it. You had that one shaping book, you know, that, that had been around for ages. Remember that you used to have that. George Oberlin, George yeah. Oberlin, I think his yeah. name was who made it. Yeah. <laughs> And and you could buy that on Block Surf. Uh, you know they would always sell it. Uh, they distributed it. Um, You're right. Like that's a really good point. The the gatekeeping of it all. Like you know, when I read about you know, when I read some interviews with shapers of the past, they said you know you you really had to pay your dues. You had to just start off sweeping in the, yeah. the shop, and then after a while, they might let you you know fix a ding or two, and just gradually and then someone had to basically die or move on before you were able to become a shaper at the place and 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 you know they talked about that in quite a romantic way yeah but my god it's like very reverent and and you can see you know the benefits that it you know it, it proves your commitment to it and back then before machines well before you know access to machines like you had to, to commit to it because it's a hard job. You had to shape thousands of boards before your muscle memory got good to do it. But it kept out everyone who wasn't friends with them. And I guess you, that's why you had such a homogenous uh, demographic shaping surfboards. Well, also, it kept the industry and surfboard shaping industry in one area, basically. Southern California, for the most part. You know, mm -hmm. South Bay or San Diego, you know, it was all really in that one area and then parts of Florida. And then you didn't see shapers really from other parts of the, of the world even, you know, cause you would have to travel to go study under someone. And, and here's that whole, that whole, like, you know, uh, you know, kind of thing that Matt talks about with the, um, you know, half, half is, you know, half of surfing is sport and half is dungeons and dragons adventure. Right. Like, uh, remember, there used to be a shaper here in uh, New York, Paulo. Remember him? Yep. Swell uh, of 77. So, Swell of 77. So there's this guy in New York, Paulo, who um, now ha is known under PB Shapes, I think it is, uh, on Instagram. And he's a really well-respected shaper right now. But he went on like this mythic quest and went to Australia. He was first an architect, graduated school with architecture, and then started shaping surfboards out of the back of his parents' house in Long Island and made a, made a you know, living doing it. Uh, but he lived at home. But then he, um, 
he ended up leaving, going to Australia, studying under numerous shapers, then went to Spain, studied at Pucas and, you know, did this whole kind of surfboard shaping hero's journey of sorts, you know, and, you know, now he's like kind of a master craftsman and very well respected. Uh, but it's like he had to it was like so hard, like for him, to, he had to travel and leave his home to to learn all these skill sets that now people can kind of watch a YouTube video or go on the surf network. And John Carper has those shaping tutorials from like the late nineties, early two thousands. There were DVDs shaping one oh one series, which is um, funny because the way, you know, you're telling it, it, it nowadays can be such a less romantic situation. You, you yeah. don't have to, you would never do what he just did unless you just, you know, just for fun, basically. But at the same time, the YouTube and the online stuff has resurrected the hand shaping, hasn't it? Because yeah. it was dying out, you know, 10, oh, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, like anything you read, it was like you were scared that there wasn't going to be any more hand shaping anymore. Yeah. You know, and that's um, that's the thing. Like everyone, you know, I, I, I recently met this guy, Hans, uh, you know, at this uh, party we were talking. He showed me his board he shaped. In his apartment, he shaped it on the terrace, you know, of his apartment in the city, you know, or shaped it in his in his house and then did the glassing on the terrace. You know, it was crazy. Or there was this guy, Javier. I don't know if you remember him. He shaped he lived in an apartment in the city. He shaped the board in the kitchen, you know, of his apartment. His wife, I can't believe, let him do this. You know, imagine you just find foam dust everywhere. But it was just like. Yeah, that that whole scene now people can just shape their boards, you know, wherever and really have a dig at it. It may not be perfect. It may not be pretty, but it's like a, an incredible appreciation for surfboard shaping now. I think everyone actually has a greater appreciation for it, uh, for the people who do it really well, because you're able to take a take a stab at it, which before would be really difficult to do. Yeah, that's yeah. my little rant. <laughs> the, you know you know what i hear though james sorry what's that you know what i hear the most though from a lot of shapers is everyone romanticizes the shaping but no and there's lots of people hand shaping but there are no glassers or laminators out there no one wants to do that that's like the dirty work and that's like that's, the thing that's really that's like right now people are struggling to find glassers you know, and that's really jacking up pricing of surfboards. Yeah, it's it's like in the UK with, you know, like HPV drivers, you know, no one wants to do it anymore, but we need them. Um, yeah. So uh, all you kids listening out there, if you want a good job, yeah. glass away. Glass uh, away, and you can do cool shit with it, actually. Like, there's yeah, so much cool stuff. Yeah, well, I think um, Surfers Journal did a whole article earlier this year. Actually, I think it was about Sanders, actually. Yeah. And just how that really can affect the 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 outcome of the the board. Yeah, the only what's the, I can think of one glasser who's achieved like guru status. Can you can you Laser Wolf? That? No, not but Martin him. Worthington. No, he's no, an he's the artist. He's the artist. Sorry. Oh, you know, Dick Brewer's glasser. Oh, Jimbo Yarbrough. No, well, no, maybe uh, Jack Reeves. Jack, Jack Reeves, Reeves is right, the sorry. one who like he's the one name that like just 
is probably bubbled up to if you are really into reading about surfboards and stuff that's the name that does come up a lot but you're right yeah the glasses and uh, glassing has not evolved in terms of like how it's done like there's no new tech really except for vacuum bagging that's probably mm. you know there's obviously you know there are new techniques of of glassing but there's no machine to glass a board there's yeah, no there's nothing that makes it more efficient really yeah because if you don't yeah because the way yeah it's glasses you dump it over the board you know, pour it out of the bucket and squeegee it on and i know like yeah I, I if you don't know much about it my first like gut reaction is like can't there be something that sprays it on or something like that you know well, like like with paint you know on a car or something well i um i had an interesting conversation with our, our local shaper here in new york mike becker um we were talking on he's always like thinking creatively and that's one of the things he was asking me and we were talking about like there are other ways how could you glass a surfboard and i told him how uh k2 skis does their skis right they wrap their skis in a um in a fiberglass sock with biaxial braiding braiding right exactly and it's this big rotary machine. Do they still with, do that? Because I remember yeah. they, in the 90s, that was like their catchphrase, triaxial braiding. They still do it, you know. And I actually, when I went to their, their, their R&D facility in Seattle, I saw the machine. It was so fucking cool. It was this big rotary machine. I wasn't allowed to take pictures. Um, but it had spindles of... Um, you know, fiberglass, you know, uh, just kind of like these these long strings of fiberglass on each side. And the ski would go through it as this rotated around it and would create a sock around it and made it really tight. And then they would just get glassed. You know, I don't I, I didn't get to see the glassing part, but it would make it really strong, really tight. And I was like, there's a new way to potentially do a surfboard like this. Well, that would be. Yeah, I think um, a good interview would be with, you know, someone who has a glass shop. You know, I I don't know who's big now, but like I'm thinking of uh, Larry Pope and Tony Chen and someone like yeah. that. You know, who had the big glass shops. You know, if, yeah. Maybe if, if David did an interview with one of them and really, like, found out why it's this way and why it can't be that way. Well, the sanding part I think is really uh, that's something that has to be done really meticulously and you have to be really pay attention each, each board is different and has yeah. variables whereas like a car you can program in to do the same the rails are different you know it's it's a yeah it's a it's the only the only way you could do it is really assembly line maybe you know but then it's again you have to produce a shit ton of boards to do that and that's where you you would have to probably outsource it unfortunately Let's um, talk about the, the 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 sexy stuff. Let's yeah, talk about. All right, let's talk about who, sexy. Who, <laughs> let's get sexy. <laughs> just like a, a, a easy one, not easy one, but just something to dive more uh, less into that fine tune stuff. But like uh, when you think of like guru shapers, like yeah. Dick Brewer was. I mean, in one way, Matt kind of like blew the load and said the guru shaper, like. Yeah, like that video. I know you've seen it, where him and Owl Chapman are having that discussion on the yeah. beach in like 1970, where it's just like, man, you know. Actually, it's funny. Like I always read about Dick Brewer and always thought he sounded pretty spacey, but when he was speaking, he sounded really grounded. Actually, yeah. 
Whereas Al was like, man, yeah, just drop the curve, man. And, <laughs> and Dick Bruce was like, of course, because that's why he wanted like this and this. But he had his Elvis sunglasses on and it just did look very cool and guru-y. Uh, when you think of guru shapers, like what are yeah. a few that just spring to mind? I mean, George Greeno uh, would be a kind of a guru shaper, you know, uh, and Bob McTavish, I would I would put up there for sure. You know, they're, they're so influential on surfboards and culture in general. And very influential. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, Skip Fry would be another guru shaper for sure. I mean, everyone seems to, you know, revere him. And, and there's like, you know, the whole hashtag Friday, you know, every Friday people post <laughs> different Skip Fry photos and stuff. And they go, happy Friday. <laughs> well, I think that illustrates like a guru yeah. shape is not just really good or influential. It's someone who has like that a cult following, status, you know? Yeah. yeah who uh, has the cult Steve Liz, following? Steve Liz also. Oh, yeah. Steve Liz is like, I mean, to get a, you, you can't really get a board from him now, you know, but, uh, but like to get a to bagels. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he would be totally like one of the most guru type of shapers. Uh, Cause it's not easy to get a board from him. If, if, if possible now, I don't think it is even. Uh, and he created, um, he created like such an, um, not, not iconic just iconic board. design, but, but a board, which just is a thing. It's, it's like he, it's, it's, you know, creating the fish. It's almost like saying like, uh, the person who created uh, the pickup truck as yeah. far as like, you know, it's, yeah, a, it's he a type a whole of genre. A whole genre of surfing almost in a way riding a fish is different than so many other boards um and yeah and yeah like associated with the era of you know san diego in the underground 70s and not only that when david nueva cut you know copied it and then you know the said they they you know took david's board and you know, stabbed it to the PB pier, like <laughs> why? Because he didn't give credit to Steve. Yeah. This is the inventor of it. Yeah, you know, it was like that. There's a whole. There are disciples of Steve Liz. You know, the whole San Diego shaping community. There are like all these disciples. Sunset Cliffs. You know, there's this whole. You know, there there are people who who are um, you know praise the altar of Steve Steve Liz. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing. You know, like we were talking about how back in the eighties, anyway, different geographical locations had their loyalty to different surfboard makers. Right. Uh, even if it wasn't a local surfboard. Maker. Yeah. Um, but like, I remember reading about um, Palos Verdes surfers, you know, like you had to have a Joe Bark surfboard yeah. if you surf Palos Verdes. And it, um, you know, obviously Santa, um, Santa Barbara in the early eighties was associated with Al Merrick and, and Matt Moore and Matt Moore. Right. Those two right there. You know, you were like, if you would be like, cool, you had a challenge, but if you had a Matt Moore, you were like, Ooh, that and, next um, level, I think Bradbury. Yeah. John oh, and Bradbury yeah. John Bradbury. Well. Yeah. Just, yeah. Rennie Yader and Lauren yeah. Yader. I suppose. Yeah. There's a few they had there. Yeah different ones and they're different tribes that i but it's funny how we had like because we didn't have any big time shapers on long island yeah. growing up you know there's a 
a few good shapers locally, but they weren't like uh, producing as how we had John Prebram surfboards, you know, JP like, surfboards, JP, everyone, and had Michael Barron, well, Michael Barron was, it was funny, like, cause um, in, in 88 or 89, I think I'd heard of Michael Barron surfboards, but they hadn't quite been big on Long Island yet. But then when I went to Manisquan, everybody had a Michael Barron. Scotty Dewar was out yeah. and he was on a Michael Barron. And it was like, who is this MB? You know, surfboards. And I was Michael Barron. I said, right, okay. Well, that that was all um, based on the surf shops, that what what deals and what shapers they could get. And then they would get the local surfers riding those boards. Uh, like the, you know, the team riders would then get a board like that. I remember you would go through all these phases, right? Like I remember for us in New York, it was like you had JP in like the late 80s, then early 90s, a lot of Michael Barron. Uh, but then like, remember, like spider surfboards were everywhere, like Albert was riding them, Larry Herrick, like all these local guys in New York were were riding spider boards. And obviously Curran was on the team and Frankie and all those guys, they were having a moment, you know, and there's been always these in vogue surfboards i think it's just become more generic as the board brands have gotten bigger a bit yeah. more and, you know? and that's the thing, like in um yeah maybe now you know like i think you were saying recently that a lot of surfers now might emulate john florence uh, you know as opposed to the local you know yeah. hot shot and the same thing yeah now like uh yeah i'll see um Pizels, you know here in england you know and it's like you're buying the, you know, because it's a famous board, you know, and you know, it's a really good board. Whereas I remember in the eighties when JP was big on Long Island and, and it was, and Spectrum may have been big, you yeah. know, at, uh, and, uh, like right near Robert Moses and stuff. And, uh, Phoenix was probably big, you know, uh, yeah. in Babylon. And I remember seeing someone out on a burn surfboard, you know, Phil Byrne, you know yeah. what tom carroll was riding and thinking oh yeah that's kind of fun to have a burn but you're not hardcore you know or <laughs> you know when someone got a channel islands or a rusty it was like yep yeah, that cool you got a really great board but you're not as hardcore as the people who are getting well, what's local is you know uh, but back to you know guru shapers you know there's you know, we've been pretty American centric on some of these, but I mean, there's like some, some great Australian ones as well. Jim Banks would be another guru shaper. Wouldn't you put him in kind of a certain class? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, his boards... Terry Richardson is probably yeah. more guru for being the surfer than the shaper, probably. But Although he, didn't, didn't Matt Archbold ride Richo's? Yeah, boards, right? he did. A number of really good surfers had Terry Richardson boards, actually. You know, so I mean, he he had a huge influence. Uh, what's it? Gash surfboards in? Uh, oh, a uh, Browning, Greg. Yeah, Greg, Greg Browning. Greg I think Browning. Yeah, name. yeah. You know, like that. Those ads were iconic too. They were so metal. You know, in yes. leather and fetish. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, cool. And I think his boards before that were Roar surfboards. Yeah. That, I think. Um, Greg Weber also with the banana rocker and, and just he's still kind of, I think, kind of amazing. Like his his boards are so crazy and out there. Well, so who do you think was the first guru shaper? Not because obviously, you know, Hobie was 
you know, a big, great shaper from the beginning. Yeah. But I, he doesn't feel like, yeah, Velzi would have been one of the first Velzi, gurus. Velzi with the pig, you know, like that board. Well, his personality him. as and well. And his personality, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean he's, he is Hawk, basically. Mm. <laughs> uh, he would be, him or Bob Simmons, you know, Simmons is like more le- mythology I would say than than guru. It would be hmm. mythological shaper. Yeah, and he had he had a, a small following, I guess, back then. But then, like the cooler guys were Quig and Kivlin, and like, yeah, they were, the, they were the ones who like everybody liked more, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's I Hinson, like how- Mike. Mike Hinson yes. was like someone who was such a hot surfer but then started to get more known for his boards because yeah. they were so good and like how he had the everyone riding the red fins you know like it's just yeah yeah i very, very do cool. you, i mean do you think some of these shapers were intentional in trying to create these like kind of um uh you know kind of the brand around their 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 shapes or or create the the kind of uh the disciples or whatever you want to call it kind of the myth around their their kind of shaping like anyone that deliberate or not like calculated or not i don't know but it's uh, when you the people we've mentioned like they must do you think dave parmenter is calculated or or (laughs) or i don't think of him as a guru because he more has dave parmenter I think I th- from what I can tell, he has like a real loyal following of everyday surfers. Yeah. Good, really good surfers. And I mean, I know like he's shaped for, uh, you know, people who've surfed is John Bowling, I think maybe. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Maybe I got the name wrong, but like people who surf big Mavericks and everything, really yeah. good shapers, surfers. But I feel like he's more, uh, he has a loyal following and he's friends with all the people he shapes for. And it's, it's quite pure. Whereas, I, you know, Dick Brewer, Mike Hinson, even Terry Fitzgerald, like they, they were quite alpha people, very charismatic people who enjoyed or contributed to the following just naturally because of their personality as well as their quality of shaping. Yeah. So I think the personality come where Dick Brewer famously talked about himself in the third person, you know, so like it's, (laughs) that's about as much, they were like, there must be like, okay, like thousands of people with the right personality and some of them were amazing shapers at the right time. And so the combination of the two made them into guru shapers. How can we forget the Campbell brothers? Are they guru shapers or they, cause they created the the most interesting d- design of surfboards their story is amazing yeah and and yeah i guess they do have a following but then they ended up like so oh, i always mix up duncan i think we, duncan one of them, went to hawaii right and ended up running the halley of a cafe you know yeah um and is, and then Malcolm ended up, you know, being like a ghost shaper for, um, you know, Channel Islands and and still shaped his own boards and had the following. It's funny, like, I don't, I don't know if you can consider them, because a guru is a bit of like, a guru is something like you walk in and you're like, oh, well, who's that guy sitting over there? You know, like, it's- I mean, when they did the um, Surfer Magazine did that issue where they recreated famous um, surf photos. 
I don't know if you remember that issue. They had yes. the, the Dick Brewer the with Darling Lopez. Picked, yeah. Yeah, they did the Dick. I mean, for our listeners, like you probably know this photo with Dick Brewer, Reno and Jerry, you know, and they're doing the yoga poses and the headstand. And uh, then they had, uh, you know, basically uh, Duncan Campbell with uh, Joel Tudor and uh, Taylor Knox in the same pose, kind of recreating that, which I thought was pretty freaking cool. Yeah, um, I feel like those guys, the Campbell brothers, are very pure and honest, and their their design has mythical status. Yeah. But them as personalities, I don't think of them as like, it's like they're not known for them. They're known for the bonzer. Right, right. Whereas mm. like Mike Hinson is known for Mike Hinson. Of course, you know, the down rail and, and so forth. And uh, Dick Brewer is known for the stuff and Simon Anderson is known for the... Well, yes, again, like Simon Anderson, I don't know if you'd think of him as a guru shaper. You think of him as the guy who created the thruster. Right. But as far as a guru shaper, who's just like, whoa, the Dungeons <laughs> Dragons. I don't know. I did, yeah. Define, define, do you want to define what a guru shaper is then? Like, I don't think we've properly defined it. You know, we've been talking about it, but I don't think we've given like, what, what, what are the requirements of a guru shaper? Uh, you know, they have to be a good shaper, of course. Yeah, I think um, the personality has to have a bit of a cult following for the person. So, so like, basically, if, if someone came up to me and said, um, would you like a surfboard shaped by Dick Brewer? I'd be like, yes, yes, yes. Because he'll just make something magic for me. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I wouldn't almost even know what it would look like, you know, whereas, um, you know, if you said, uh, okay, do you want one made by Duncan Campbell? I said, oh, sweet. I'm going to get a really cool bonzo. Maybe I'll talk to him about, you know, this. I'm thinking of the board, you know, whereas, and like, if you said, okay, do you want to like have a Zoom call with Dick Brewer to talk about it? I'd be like, oh, no, that's, I, I couldn't do that. You know, like maybe you talk to him. That's too scary. Whereas if Duncan Campbell was going to be talking, I was like, brilliant. Yes, I could, you know, like, I feel really comfortable about talking to So there's an attitude to towards to it, right? Like there's there's something not accessible about the shaper, mm -hmm. would you say? There's this uh, you know, difficulty of of acquiring that board, right? Well, like, it's also like when you say like a de when we mentioned a deity status, you know, as a yeah. mortal, you're not supposed to be able to talk to the the gods, you know, you need a yeah. demigod maybe to do it for you. Um so that's the guru state. Like I want their magic, you know, yeah. whereas um, everything I know about the Campbell brothers, actually I've, I've just met them. I've met them just happening to meet them. I just bumped into them. And both yeah. times they didn't know me from a hole in the wall and they were just really friendly people, you know, like. Uh, so, so guru shape has got to be a dick. And <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I tried to interview Dick Brewer when I was in Hawaii, uh, you know, in 2001, and it was like impossible. Like, just hmm. I was trying so hard to get an interview with him, and I, you know, uh, I I was like, come here. And I was told by Jimbo uh, Yarbrough, like Jim Yarbrough, he was like, come be here at this time, and we'll set it up. And then I showed up and Dick didn't really want to talk. And I was at his shaping bay and then like, all right, come back tomorrow. And I came back to the next day. No one was there. And I just kept, I eventually just gave up because I was like, they, 
they probably don't want to speak to me at all. <laughs> so, and I was yes. in college, I was just a kid. So I think like, it adds to the mystique. It's a mystery. Accessibility is limited. Accessibility and a is mystery. Limited. And their personalities, even if you do accept. Oh, yeah. well, I, I mean, perfect case in point, which was very controversial. You know, um, Jeff Johnson's article about getting a board from Al Chapman. Yeah. And he, <laughs> it was, I, I loved it. You know, I read it a few times and how tricky it was. in the Surfer's Journal for our listeners. And it's a great article. Yes, but... I think afterwards Al was not very pleased because it made, yeah. it made him seem difficult, you know? Yeah. Um, which is uh, from my point of view, it made, it elevated him. It made him seem even like more fascinating, Cooler. you know? And yeah. like, then I like, to me, like if I had an Al Chapman board and I had to sell it before that article. And then afterwards, if I read what it was, I would have marked the price up, you know, like, <laughs> so yeah, something. Yeah, it's it's that inaccessibility and and flakiness, maybe. <laughs> um, I mean, let's let's talk about uh, surfer shaper relationships. How about that too? Because I think that's a those are very uh, important uh, aspects to making boards because they influence each other you know, very much so. What are, what are some of the, your, your favorite surfer shaper relationships? And let's discuss, like, let's unpack like their influence. Yeah. Cause like they, you know, like, um, like the, the famous one of, you know, Al Merrick and Tom Curran, like, yeah. You know, could Al Merrick have become what he became without Tom Curran and vice versa? Um, you know, like, cause because yeah, it's interesting. Or the egg. Yeah. Well, it's also like <laughs> I've heard some people say, oh, you know, you have to be an amazing surfer, you know, top level surfer to be a top level shaper, which I, I totally disagree. disagree with. Yeah. Although apparently he was a really shit hot surfer and like was winning like was um, events and, you know, amateur events. Al Merrick mm -hmm. was winning amateur events. But like, you know, if, if Al Merrick makes something and Tom goes out and rides it and said, that was good, but I'd like it to do this. And then he goes, okay, I'll try and do that. You know, it's, they're, they're feeding off each other. Like it's just, yeah. yeah. What do you, what do you think that relationship did for surfing, uh, surf culture? Like, what do you think, how do you think that affected every, everything? Well, I mean, there's so many things that, you know, just starting with like actual, uh, nuts and bolts stuff like was like yeah. the, the the triplane hole you know like the the concaves the del alongside the stringer and um the the, the bump squash you know there's you know the wind yeah. you know bed, you know there's all sorts of little things like that i would but i would also, argue it helped led to a standardization of surf of certain surfboard shapes also hmm. right like before kern you could see lots of different boards in competition right like a lot of the boards looked different post current boards really standardized mm. uh, now you look at surfboards uh in competition at least you know the difference is is you have to look at it with a really you know with a microscope to see the difference sometimes like there, there are differences but it's not like it's not like how it was in the 70s right or or like what mr was riding was 
so completely different to like maybe what Sean would be riding or, you know, or what rabbit would ride. Like those boards, you were totally different outlines, totally different, uh, you know, bottom contours, different fin configurations. Whereas I think post current, everything really started to standardize like current, you know, maybe Aki and Rusty too. Well, yeah. Like what would it, so if, if you took Kern and Merrick out of the equation and yeah. you had Aki and Rusty, Phil Byrne and Tom Carroll, um, uh, you know, um, uh, Al Byrne and, uh, um, and Kong and, yeah. um, you know, all this and Glenn Minami and, um, uh, Greg, Greg Cloud, uh, Damien Hardman. Yeah. All, all those guys. I'm just, yeah. it's just a, a mental exercise. If I can yeah. remember who's, who mm-hmm. was in the top six. And, um, Eric Oko and Hans Hiedemann. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. Brad Gerlach and And Ben Iper. Ah, but before him? Before Ben Iper. Um why am I blanking? Gary Linden. Gary Linden. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Glenn Todd Winton Holland and, and Gary Winton? Linden. Yes. Which one? Right. Glenn Winton and Glenn Winton or did Glenn Winton and Glenn Winton, I think. He did the quads. Yes. So Derek Ho and Eric Awakawa as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Potter and Minami. I said that one already. No, you did? Okay. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Anywho, um, there, was, there was definitely, but I think Curran's style ever became so emulated. Yeah. Uh, you know, it had such an influence, and that influenced the boards too and the shapes, right? Like that to me really helped to standardize surfboards and the uh, refinement of it. Yeah. And how many people rode Channel Islands in the nineties was crazy. Oh gosh. Well, Slater, you know, then Slater and, and Al Merrick and the glass slipper, you know, that, that probably was detrimental to a lot of surfing surfers, you know, um, I, I liken that to like the shortboard revolution, how a lot of people just were like, oh, I probably gave up on some level of shortboard riding at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's to ride true, actually. Yeah, that actually influenced the whole fish and then the mid lengths and the long boards and all that came as a, a counter yeah. to that. Yeah. Who, who, which, um, which shapers do you yeah. think kind of rose? out of obscurity because of their relationship with the surfer? Huh. Um, I think Pizel and John John would be a real, real big one there. Um, Greg That's Weber and Shane thinking. Herring. Greg Weber and Shane Herring. Like Greg Weber, you know, was good shaper, but then all of a sudden, like, became like the shit, you know, after mm-hmm. Shane Herring, you know, and the banana rockers. Um, trying to think like even before, you know, uh, like, I don't know. Um, who, what about you? Throw, throw some of your, I know, know Paisel was the first one, but I remember reading a long time ago, you know, an interview with Timmy Curran and yeah. Uh, oh, Casey McChrystal, Casey McChrystal, how they were just like, you know, local guys, you know, from Oxnard and then he stuck with him. He didn't ditch him like, yeah. like sometimes happens, you know, but then he kind of never became like a super famous 
shaper. I feel you like know. he quit shaping. I, really? I'm, I don't know. And if any of our listeners know, like what happened to Casey McChrystal and his surfboards and, and Timmy Kern, like, please let us know. Like, cause I, I feel like something happened where he quit shaping potentially. And then Timmy Kern went to like Al Merrick. Okay. Um, you know, so I'm not, you know, now like, uh, was it Nathan Kern? Curran is like, uh, you know, one of the uh, head guys at uh, Channel Islands, apparently. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of curious, like what, where that story, you know, where that story went. Um, what other, what other, I mean, Greeno, McTavish, Nat Young, you know, would you say would be kind of like a menage a trois of uh, <laughs> <laughs> shaping relationships, a threesome, if you will? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's loads. But and that's why it's so um, fascinating. Like, mm, you know, like it's something I'm, I'm careful about touching here. But was that Nev Hyman, didn't he after the world championships? Um you know like pointed out how you know the the winners didn't point out didn't say they said thank you to my you know my my girlfriend my girlfriend's dad my coach my sponsors my um and so on but they didn't mention the shapers carissa morden mentioned mentioned lost you know matt biolis um you know yeah I didn't um, hear her speech. I, I listened. She to didn't. Nadina's she didn't. Speech. That was part of that was part of the whole thing. It was like a yeah. few articles written on that. And I listened to Medina's speech because it actually was a really nice speech. And he was very kind of humble and grateful and quite yeah. cool. But then also. Um, yeah, because actually, I I don't know who his shaper is. Actually. Cap- Capibianco. Oh, I. Yeah. Oh, then. Oh, and it's who's. Who's Philippe Toledo's then? Uh, Sharp Eye, Marsuvio. Mars, Mars, Zou, Zou, yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. So you know? that's the thing. Like, it's like, this is like, if you watched, um, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton, he would thank McLaren, you know, like, but, because they, but they've also got the money, you know, behind it. But it feels like that's their, you know, like, with a, yeah, without the, the shapers, it's one of the most important parts, ingredients. And one of the, you know, one that's under, you know, definitely not mentioned enough sometimes and, and sometimes glorified, I guess. I, I think, you know what I, I think it's interesting is like the shapers are, are big, but, you know, the glassing is starting to also, um, you know, get a little bit more notoriety. Dark arts. Are you familiar with them? Like they're doing John John's boards and they did like some of the, you know, Toledo boards, like the epoxy. They're doing these carbon kind of epoxy boards that are really strong, durable, but have good flex characteristics. And they're promoting like their glassing, glassing factory. Um, you're starting to see more of that type of uh, branding, actually. I bring it back mm. to the glasser because I do think they are probably one of the most under, under not talked about and are really important to the surfboard shaping. Um, yeah. You know, and it's a and it's a, you know, something that I think is um, not discussed enough and not uh, given enough credit towards. Yeah, and people might say it's important, but it's um, it's like over here during the pandemic, you know, everyone was saying like, oh, you know, hats off to the National Health Service. But the National yeah. Health Service like, oh, well, why don't you 
put your put your money where your mouth is actually pay us a little bit more yeah. money you know it's like <laughs> it's, it's like yeah shapers and glassers or sand like the whole surfboard industry everyone talks about them in reverent tones yeah but then uh it's i mean that's been a critique for a long time it's, i i remember 20 the business model is busted the business model is, is tricky and just 20 years ago when it was all about hand shaping you know wayne yeah. lynch was saying how a backyard shaper or you anyone can you know make a surfboard and sell it for a lot less than you know a famous shaper could they could sell it for cost and you wouldn't know the difference in a way unless you actually got on the board and wrote it but by looking at it, it as the same materials and everything um and the shaper couldn't charge a premium yeah and he was saying at the time that they should get uh like a trade deal you know like surfboard shapers should get the materials for a lot cheaper than like an everyday person should um, well that's that i mean let's talk about the business model uh boards is business you know because i think that's a really to me that's always interested me uh because i feel like there are different ways shapers could probably go about the business of it and they don't and it's been kind of stagnant for a long time until recently um you know you have you know it's a shaper they they shape board they they don't mark it up like a lot of other goods like it's like the markup is 20%, 30% maybe, you know, on a lot of boards, like they don't do the normal 40 to 50%, uh, like a lot of other consumer goods. It's more like technology kind of like a lot of tech stuff tends to be like a 20, 25% margin on. Yeah. Well, but it's, isn't that because of what I was saying before is that like, um, if, if they did mark it up, let's say, you know, let's say they paid the, 400 for the for the materials yeah and then they sold it for 800 well i could shape a board i could buy for 400 i could sell it for 600 and like we yeah. just the well, there's been a lot of undercutting them. you know a lot of, cutting, yeah. lot of a lot of a lot of undercutting that's happened with shapers like a lot of shapers tend to undercut especially you have a backyard shaper a local shaper who will undercut the the uh, other shapers there's no standardization of pricing yeah. Um, and if you're no a sh shaping union really either they try yeah, and if you're a and if you're like a an ordinary surfer who pretty much just goes across the wave and maybe does a, a nursed cutback at the end mm. you probably wouldn't know the difference between a, a backyard shape and and an expert shape you know and then you have like this whole thing where you have like a the outsourcing of surfboards you know, and that's also played into it, right? Like having boards from overseas made in, uh, you know, countries where they can pay workers less, right? Like you have all those boards from Thailand and China, um, you know, that are, that they're able to do for a lot less basically. And the quality is now like phenomenal. Um, but like, God, remember we, we always had the, you know, at our dad shop, we had the Tommy Senna boards, you know, which, we're pretty these so this guy tommy's for our listeners this guy tommy senna bought up a bunch of well-known uh brands when they went defunct and bought bought them for pretty cheap supposedly there's this whole bunch of rumors and stuff about it but that he started making boards in china and they weren't great boards but they were a lot of uh, what people would call fun boards not mid-lengths 
Um, you know, and we sold a shit ton of them and there was good margin and good markup on them. And, uh, a lot of people would, um, you know, would buy these boards and they look good. You know, they're the, the quality probably wasn't the best, but they weren't much worse than stuff that you would get from some of the other shapers. I mean, they held up just as well as some of the others. So that was I like guess a, that's the thing that a shape of the surfboard was the only thing that distinguishes, you know, one board to the next. The materials are all the same. Pretty much, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. you have like good glassers, bad glass, glass jobs or certain quality issues. But I would argue that there were for a while um, lots of shapers who, especially in the 90s, who, you know, made boards that fell apart really fast, were sanded really thin, light glass jobs. And well, yeah, right. That's the other thing is that, you know, like if you would spend a lot of money from a big name board and it wouldn't, if you surfed a lot, it wouldn't last more than a year. Yeah. You shouldn't pay that much more for it. I guess that's the thing, you know, why, why you can't afford to. Yeah. They were very disposable. A lot of those boards. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I'm not going to buy my kids a new iPad every year, even though an iPad costs less than a surfboard. Um, certainly not going to buy a new surfboard every year, you know? Yeah. And also you would, you would, you know, especially when you're a kid, you grew so much and boards would, you know, change and your ability would change. Uh, that would probably affect a lot of that too. But I think, um, I, I feel like a lot of shapers are great shapers, but really shit business people. That's the other thing. Uh, they're just not good at business. They, you know, I've had so many interactions with shapers where oh, it takes forever to get a board. Um, I mean, shit, I waited two years for a surfboard from a, from a local shaper here, yeah. you know? And, and why should they be good business people? I mean, if you go into, if, yeah, if you went to Apple, you know, like the, the best, the designer, Johnny Ives, you know, wouldn't necessarily yeah. be known for his business acumen. Why should he? He should be focusing on, on, on the shaping. Product. Yeah, it's a lot to ask of a shaper to be a good business person. Yeah, no, but it's like, that's the thing. Like they've had to evolve or change, you know, and, you know, so the companies like, you know, Almeric lost, they've been able to uh, evolve their business to like a more production style, you know, production line style of business uh, rather than the guru shaper who is more inaccessible and, has, you know, shapes one board at a time by hand and takes, you know, takes custom orders. There's definitely a fragmentation of the surfboard uh, market in that way. Um, you know, you're, you definitely have like some people who've gone, become business savvy and some who've kind of gone underground and then you have your mass produced stuff now. Yeah. So do you think, uh, when was the most fun time to be a, a surfboard buyer? Oh, I think now, I think now is probably one of the most fun because you can, you get, you could choose your own adventure. You know, you, if you, if you want to get a board, you know, you could go to a surf shop and they have like firewires, you know, like a lot of the surf shops will do firewire with consignment, right? Like the, they don't pay for the firewires up front. They have them there and then they pay firewire when the board sells consignment style. So you could go get a really nice, Firewire, great board that a lot of pros use right away. Or you can go to a guru shaper and wait six months and get like a really nice, beautiful board. 
or you can get a affordable pop out. You can get a foam board. Like you can get anything right now. 90s suck to buy a surfboard. You know, it was like mm. one style of board, basically, you know, and anything that deviated from that kind of was weird. I think the 70s would be pretty cool. Right. Yeah, well, there's such a diverse amount of surfboards at yeah. the time and uh, things were changing and uh, pro surfing was starting, but also the hippie soul surfer was finishing and the traveling surf. There's a lot of different, I guess, kind of like now there's a lot of different types of surfing, but back then it was a bit more, what's the word, combative, you know, or like <laughs> fractious in a in a exciting way maybe now is probably a nice way you know you can just ride whatever mm. you want and you'll be fine whereas back then you're there were different tribes and if you chose one of those tribes you know you'd be on the other side of the fence to the other tribe sort of like how Derek Hine was in the terry fitzgerald camp now would be it like you would just stay in that you'd be in this kind of surfboard shaper kind of enclave i guess in the mm. surf culture world you know you were devoted almost to shaper whereas now there's not as much devotion. I mean, shit, like even pros, like they don't, a lot of pro surfers don't, you know, have like uh like one shaper. They get boards from different shapers even. Yes. That's uh yeah, that's, that's what I was wondering about. Like Slater now each event has boards from a different person. Yeah. Um, is that now uh, this is a question I want to ask, like, you know, when you hear that, John Pizel shapes John John's boards. Yeah. Was, does that, he actually do it with a planer each time? Does he? Oh, no. How does I, it? I think he probably, I think the model is, uh, and, and listeners, please correct us, you know, or give, inform us. Uh, but I do think like what happens is now you have these shapers designing boards and some will be on machines. Some will actually, They'll handshape a board based off of what, you know, maybe a different model. So like Pizel, what I've read is like he's described it where he's taking a board that John's liked and, you know, and then he, you know, takes John's feedback and then like he will take like a like a blank and shape. He'll he'll start with like a, a rough board, handshape it and do a few of those find the one that John likes and then he'll put that onto the CAD machine and start designing and making all the changes to it that John needs. And I don't think they're all done by hand. I think why does he by... do it by hand at all? I don't know. Maybe it's just to, uh, you know, maybe it's, you need to create that outline first to do it. You could but do if it. You've already got like, if he's already, he's obviously got millions of boards already. Yeah. I feel like if you did it by hand, you'd be really like throwing everything aside and like starting fresh again. Is that what yeah. happens? Yeah, I think sometimes it does. I know Dane Reynolds does that. We'll we'll go in with Brent Merrick. They'll talk about a board, what they want, an idea, a concept for a board. And then Brent will hand shape that first one out. And then they work on refining it with the machine. And but I think like that's if you're on the tour, you're I imagine you're constantly just trying to improve what you've got already and not completely probably crash. Probably. Probably. I we don't know. So. We're not, <laughs> we we're not pros, you know, we I don't guess, know. We don't work in the industry. But, no, but that's, it's <laughs> like, if you think about it, like if, 
if if it's the case that like high performance shapers for the pros yeah. are not messing around with hand shaping because they're always just trying to improve on what's there and you know otherwise you can't recreate it like if i if john john has a really great board he says but i wanted to do a bit more of this well, you wouldn't reshape it because you might not yeah. shape identically. You would all, you would tweak one thing. So it would all be done computer shaped, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. So then how does a new shaper become good enough to be a top end shaper? Do they just shape like a hundred boards and then they go straight into designing it online? I don't know. I mean, I think uh, some are people who just hand shape like a lot of boards and you know do that until they build up like a local following and are able to you know then get a stuff on on a machine but i also think some people just do designing on the machine and that's it and they don't know how to properly shape a full board from from start to finish like i just i'm slab. just thinking when when all the top shapers now retire yes yeah. who's going to replace them are they going to be people who've only done mostly online designing or are they going to be people because because there's no reason to shape yeah. five thousand ten thousand boards because you're not going to have that many well customers. a lot of those people are sanding you know and finishing boards at least they're getting that sort of practice um you're just thinking you're not sure i'm not sure <laughs> no 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 i don't know i don't know i'm not sure i'm not sure what the contingency plan is uh for a lot of them i know like here in New York, like I know some people like Paul Surf is a guy here who shapes all the boards by hand and he makes a, a wide variety of boards. They're beautiful and he glasses them too. And he started, you know, just by shaping boards and now he's built a following and he's even like he won the respect of Pat Curran. He got templates from Pat Curran and he helped Pat Curran shape a bunch of boards recently. So, you know, I think there's always going to be those people who start out by hand probably. And then, you know, when the business scales up to a point where you can't do it by hand anymore, that's when they get a machine um, for a lot of people, you know, and some people may just have the money to start out on a machine right away. And then just they're good designers. Well, you don't need a lot of money because don't yeah. like, if you can use what like the KKL was the Kahuna, I forgot what it's called. If you use the shaping machine, like you can just rent, you just make your design and you send it to them and you pay a fee to. Yeah. You can do that too. A, I mean, it's, it's actually cheaper that way because you don't have to spend all the, the hours shaping loads of boards. You could just make one board and then make 10 of them or something. I, I would love to see, new board boards made in different ways like i'm curious what 3d printing will do to surfboards uh there there's this one instagram account i follow that does 3d printed surfboards and i actually wrote them like hey this is really cool have you thought about you know making your your construction like they're hollow almost like they're honeycomb 3d prints mm. and i said have you thought about controlling the flex by making it denser the hex is in the middle so it's more stiff and then making it less you know dense in the tail and nose so it's more flex and controlling the flex out and they're like oh that's a good idea you know like i think 3d printed boards are going to be really cool i'm i'm really i want to try this with a, a few friends here i want to make a surfboard like a skateboard deck layers stack layers of different types of foam densities and be able to control the flax. Like Kramer's apartment. 
like Kramer's apartment. <laughs> Levels, Jerry. Levels, Levels, Jerry. I don't know. I think that's, I think there's more than one way to make a surfboard. I remember when they, you know, Bob McTavish is working on those hollow boards where they would replicate professional surfboards. They were making the mold back in the early 90s. There was that whole concept. Where's that? Yeah, the pro you know, circuit where, designs. Yeah. yeah. Where's the um, where's the Solomon S core blanks? I've talked to numerous people who've ridden them, said they were phenomenal. And they yeah, were and what I'd really like is just for my own self, like I'd love to get a, a, a wooden, like, you know, if you want to make a balsa with surfboard, I think you pretty much have to chamber them to make them yeah. light enough. And that's like such a foul. I love to just shape something, but have yeah. it be wood, but shape it like foam. But yeah, you know, just put it in my backyard, just get a hand planer and just shape it out of wood, like a wood blank, like Polonia. I, but is Polonia, do you have to chamber Polonia wood? or do you I imagine if you want it to be any sort of lightness, like you would have to still chamber them because they're pretty fucking heavy and dense. Yeah, it'd be nice to have something that's light and, and that's organic that you could shape, you know? Well, remember there was a surfer's journal uh, early mid 2000s with Stanley Pliskunas and he was mm. talking about a blue foam that you didn't need to glass and that you oh. could go back and shape after riding. Cool. How cool would that be to have it have a board where it's just the foam, there's no glass on it and it's watertight and you could go surf and then you can go back and shape it down and cha make changes as you surf it. That'd be very cool. I would love, why isn't that? I'm sure there's a way to make that shit, right? Like there's yeah. gotta be. There's gotta be something out there that you could do to maybe that to mushroom make... foam that they're making. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's gotta be stuff like that. The other thing I don't understand is why haven't they tried different models of business? So, like right now, it's the standard is you shape a board, you either sell it direct to a customer or you sell it to a surf shop. What about subscription surfboards? I know there's a few places experimenting with this where you pay a yearly fee and you get to take out whatever board and hold on to it, trade it in for a different board. And you just keep paying a monthly fee for the, for the mm. board and you don't own the board technically. And you trade it in after a certain amount of time for another board or a different shape. And you can do it any time. And then they, you know, sell that use board as a demo or something to make extra money. Like, why isn't there that? Like, how cool would that be? To be able to have a board for a little bit and you're like, you know what? I want to try the, this fish for a little bit or waves are going to be really good. I'm going to bring this in. I'm going to swap it for this gun right now on a big day. Because there was, you knew about that. You told me about that company a couple of years ago who tried doing that and then it, it didn't. They tried to it. do a travel one. It was like for travel though. It wasn't set up locally. It didn't use surf shops really. They tried to do it. Um, you know, for if you go on a surf trip, you don't have to bring a board. But yeah, I would yeah. argue like you use surf shops to do that. Just at home. Uh, yeah. You know, like yeah, how I think maybe the next generation will be more up for it. Like I heard a program which was all about the environment and saying how you know, with cars, you know, we're going to it's already starting. You know, you have yeah. like here in you know, the ride London, share. Uh, well, there is that as well, but this is just yeah. like um, zip cars. So you have like a, yeah. an app on your phone and you know, like one night you know, my friend and I, we came home from the theater and 
and uh, he said and you know we didn't have anything to drink so we could drive so like he just went on his app and he's like oh there's a, a mini right around the corner we walked in, it was just yeah. parked there and he used this thing to open it up and he got in um and then someone else on the program was talking about clothing as well yeah. like already you know you people have been renting tuxes for years but also uh, probably more with women like with you know nice of occasions you know, you want to wear a nice outfit but then you're probably not going to wear it next week or the week after and yeah because it's so distinguishable like you if you wore it over and over people would be like didn't you just wear that last time you know um <laughs> and then you end up having your wardrobe or your closet just stuffed with clothes that aren't being used every day you're only using one outfit a day and it's all this wasted resource. So they're saying how the next people already are becoming much more comfortable with subscriptions like TV and Spotify and everything. And how less attachment. The next, less attachment. Probably in another 10 years, 20 years, it they're gonna be like, what? You used to own your own this, you used to own your own that. What a waste of you stuck with that old iMac that's just sitting there for four yeah. years. You could get a new one each year or something. Yeah. I mean, surfboards would be the same thing. Like and then you you could have a more responsible way of recycling the boards when they're done they're used they've lost their flex or whatever strip off the glass throw it into that machine that grinds it up reuse the foam you know like there's it's a more sustainable way of of doing boards i think actually yeah. well also um, like staring at your screen and the surfboards just sitting there they could be used yeah. by other people right now oh that's decoration that's just no, to like to impress people on zoom calls but even if you like aimed it at your surfboards that you use all the time, like they're just sitting there, like on the days when you're not surfing, if you had a subscription for that yeah. surfboard, could you leave it at the shop and someone else could use it? You don't yeah. have to make as many surfboards and it's probably more profitable that way. And then you have the one subscription called the Rick Kane subscription and you go through the whole Chandler line of models to, to, <laughs> for your surfing experience. How cool would that be? Well, I, I do like this idea of the subscription model of surfboards. I think there's there's something to that for sure. Mm, I um, do too. And I think like there's there are different ways for shapers to to make make surfboards and make a business model out of it. I think they they just haven't really explored it as much yet. Well, it seems uh, like they, a, a biz a one person who's just focuses just on the business should yeah. do it, and then corral you know like. Also, another cool thing would be to um, sell surfing, surfboard shaping experiences. I would totally love to pay to be in the room with the shaper doing the board, you know, like, and be able to kind of watch that be done or have that experience of being taught to shape, you know, have a rudimentary lesson of why they do certain things. Like, I'm sure a lot of shapers are not the most people friendly, you know, they're not always the most friendly people, but... I feel like that that sort of experience you could sell too, particularly like yeah. on Airbnb. You could sell a whole trip around it. Like, imagine if Britt Merrick was like, "We're selling trips to Costa Rica, and you could ride all of our models on these waves, and you can talk and hang out with Britt Merrick and some of our pro riders." That'd be fucking amazing. I would love that. Like, how cool would that be? Like there's so many things they could be doing. I think that's the other thing. So yeah, airport yeah, shapers. Well, if you're hiring <laughs> a marketing guy, well, didn't um, didn't uh, according to Dick Brewer, uh, yeah. 
Mark Richards' dad paid for MR to have shaping lessons from Dick Brewer. Oh, I didn't know that. Ah, damn, that would have been a good That would have been a good stump. (laughs) Speaking of which, uh, well, uh, it's time for, you know what time it is for. It's time for Stump Stump My my Bro. bro. So after we've um, meandered around all over surfboards, (laughs) kind of just went all over the place there. Hope, Hope you all enjoyed that. Um, but it's now just, yeah, it's an endless topic. It is. It's, it's, it's daunting. It's a daunting topic for sure. Um, I've got two stumps for you today. And how about yourself? All right. Well, I got you know, one or two or three. I've got a couple of ideas. Let's hear yours. Let's hear one okay. of yours. This surfer is recognized as the father of foam surfboards. The father of foam surfboards. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one who went into production and started selling foam surfboards first. It's not Hobie Alter? No. Or Grubby Clark or Dave nope. Sweet or Dave Sweet. Oh, okay. There you go. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Dave Sweet. Oh, uh, yes. That was yes. that was the one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe I should have given a bit more context. <laughs> well, because you say known as, um, because yeah. I don't think he's probably that widely known as the father of foam surf. He's not, but he should because he never really gave full credit. Like he never promoted himself as such, not until decades later. And mm. he, you know, it's interesting. So I read this like um interview with Matt uh on Surfer magazine about this and how um there's no way that Grubby and Hobie could have not known that Dave Sweet was selling and making glass foam surfboards. You know, he had been doing it a year before them, had been riding them at Malibu, had been, you know, already selling them. And they just came came across this, you know? Uh, it just, uh, to me, like, they, they kind of probably poached the idea. It wasn't like they came up with it. The way the, well, the where, whole story is told. What's the story that you know? Um, well, the story I know is like with, you know, how they were at a party and, you know, was it Grubby figured out how to use the polyester on the foam without melting the foam and, you know, kind of right. came to Hobie and showed him, showed him it. And then they were like, oh, we got to do this. You know, it was like, it, like they, they invented it or experimented and discovered the right materials to glass foam with. And Dave yeah, Sweet, what I read, yeah, what I read from from Hobie's, what yeah. he said was, yeah, he was at a party, and someone came up to him and said, "Feel this material," yeah. and he said, "Whoa!" and he said, "This is, you know, foam." And then they started to work on just how to to make yeah. bikes that would work for a surfboard. Yeah, and it took a while to. But I mean, Dave Sweet had had done it a year before them, mm. you know. So kind of interesting. I feel like they, they must have known and they, I wonder if they architected this story in some way. Maybe. Yeah, you know, Grubby Clark, story. Gordon Clark seems like that type of person who would, he seems pretty kind of ruthless in some ways, you know? Although, but he doesn't really give much, he doesn't talk much to public. He doesn't really give interviews. No, really very much. exactly. So, so I wouldn't have thought that he'd have much to do with the story. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Hobie, 
Hope you got the story. Yeah. No, I still I thought it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. All right. Yeah. What do you got for me? Um, how did how did Mike Hin? Because Mike Hinson is quite often given him and Dick Brewer and uh, what's ah, Vinnie Bryan, I think, are given like credit as being like kind of the the first people to really come up with a down rail surfboard, yeah. which ended up you know really changing things. Um, um, do you know what Mike Hinson's story is for how he came up with a down rail? No, I don't. And now I want to know. All right. Well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I stumped you. <laughs> I don't need to because I've stumped you. You didn't get it. So. <laughs> You'll never get this. <laughs> he, he said uh, in his book, Transcendental Memoirs of uh, a Surfing Legend, or is a surfing guru? I have to, it's uh Transcendent, ah, transcendental memoirs of a surf rebel. Ooh, uh, listeners, book. new uh, book for Christmas here for the holidays to give to people. Yes, uh, co-written with Donna Class and Joost or Joost or Joost. Anyway. Jay is silent. Joost. Yes, maybe it's host. Host. Host with the most. Um. So he said one day in the mid-late 60s, he was living on Maui right by Malaya, fastest wave in the world. And there was just a light little windswell breaking on the reef one day. No one was out. It wasn't even really worth surfing, but he was just messing around. So he paddled out with his big wave gun and thought he just like bought it, you know, kind of boogie board a couple of waves. And it was so shallow on the reef that he turned the board upside down and rode it tail first so that he um oh no no he didn't turn it upside down but he rode it tail first just mm -hmm. lying down so the fin wouldn't drag in the water now the tail of the board back then was actually like a hard down rail just the last bit yeah because um but 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 the rest of the board the, the meat of the surfboard didn't have a down rail anyway he's going you know along the wave lying down and anytime he leaned in to the right and the down rail engaged it just whoosh picked up speed and just started to really fly he's like hang on a second what's going on here and then real quickly he kind of worked out he's like oh my god it's because it's like skimming along the top because the water's not bending along the side and he says that i've got to try and now this is kind of the off season or so so then when the winter came and he was on the north shore and living at you know like back door um he decided to make a board with a with a full down rail, um, tip, you know, uh, bow to stern. And I, he took it out um, and he really liked it, but he was, he was, he'd been smoking weed all night and drinking. So he wasn't sure if it was just the drug. <laughs> so he, he asked Herbie Fletcher to have a go and Herbie's like, man, this board is far out. And like, <laughs> that, that was that. The thrill is back. The thrill is back. <laughs> okay. And so that's how the Hinson came up with the down rail. All right. Uh, the happy accident. Back to what we were talking happy about. Happy accidents. Uh, this one here is a, is going to be a difficult one. It's a little dry too, but, uh, who was the chemical salesman who had the foresight to approach surfboard shapers to make boards out of foam? Was it Dow? Yeah, but there was a salesman. And he's got a really quirky name. 
Oh, but it was Dow Chemicals, right? Yeah. Okay. Kit Doolittle. <laughs> Matt talks about him in this interview and he's like, but I'm not going to make a legend out of a guy named Kit Doolittle, you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's pretty, yeah, I'm curious, like what, that would be an interesting story to try to, uh, you know, unearth, like the salespeople who, who were, you know, what was going on at Dow Chemical and how this guy just was like, surfboards this would be perfect for surfboards like that is a stroke of genius mm. you know well, and to approach surfboard it? shapers you know and what was that. it being used for first the airplane wings <laughs> and other you know the, you know dow chemical using them for all sorts of things packing material they were trying to find uses for it a lot of these companies at that time like trying to figure out like what could they use these materials for you know, that's kind of like a whole, that's a whole thing that I find real interesting. Um, people don't give salespeople enough credit. You know, we find the uses for this stuff. <laughs> this the necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What do you got? Um, Anything I else? I feel like I may have asked you this one All before, right. but I'm not sure. Um, so... You know, Timmy Patterson, you know, yeah. like the bomb shaper. Oh, wait, yeah. Timmy Patterson. That's Felipe Toledo's shaper. No, that's Italo's. Ah, of course. Oh, my Italo. God. Sorry about that. Italo's shaper. Right. I knew it was one of the, the big three. Varial, varial foam. That's what they're using a lot of. What is it? It's a specific type of foam that's really durable, good flex characteristics, super lightweight. Uh, doesn't absorb water. It's like really, they're using them for a lot of stuff, for a lot of boards Ooh. and a lot of uh, Edelos boards. How does it not? Because it's like EPS, I understand how it doesn't absorb water because it's closed cells, it's not those like yeah. foam bowls. But how does this one work? How does it not absorb water? I, you got to ask a chemist. Oh. <laughs> I'm not as well, well read on the varials. Well, well, Timmy's, oh, I forget which, see, you know, the, the Patterson brothers who were, one was his dad and the other two were his uncles. You know, there was Ronald Patterson, um, Raymond Patterson, and oh, one other Patterson, I forgot who, who came over to, to Southern California in the 50s from Hawaii. And they were legendary surfers and shapers. And, you know, one of those Patterson brothers was, you know, rumored to be just as good as Phil Edwards. Like they were the two best high really? performance surfers at the time. And, um, you know, they would hang out with the, you know, they were part of the wind and sea crew. And one of them, um, you know, ended up doing, I think a lot of glassing for Hobie, I think it was. Um, and, but they were such badass characters. Um, and one of them, yeah, this, you must've heard this before, like had a special technique for, um, you know, kind of like protecting himself from all the bad fumes from glassing, you know, the toxins. Yeah. Do you know what that was? Smoking cigarettes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking cigarettes. It's a great way to block all the other fumes by putting <laughs> the smoke in. <laughs> well, well, no, it wasn't that, but he yeah. said that the, the, the cherry on the end of the cigarette, you know, the lit end would the burn. Filter. Yeah, would not the filter, but the uh, lit end, the fire would burn all the toxins before it ever got to him. So it just it created this protective, like kind of uh, 
biosphere around his mouth and nose. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> well, um, that was our attempt at uh, covering uh, surfboard making uh, in uh, for our Sunday joint, everyone. We really appreciate you listening. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, the Sunday at the Sunday Joint, and uh, of course, go and subscribe to the EOS where you can find more of this information. And I believe the um, EOS uh, fundraiser drive will be coming up soon, so keep an eye out for that, everyone. And um, hopefully, we'll catch you all down the line. All right, thank you. I really wanna see you. you.